Welcome, uh, welcome to Parkway. My name is Jeff Ashley, one of the pastors here. And uh, as Jerry read, we'll be in Proverbs chapter 2 this morning. And uh, as you uh, turn there in your uh, Bible or on your phone or something like that, I want to tell you a little bit uh, of a story. Growing up, uh, my family had a dog. I think whenever I was about four or five years old, uh, my brother and I, whose birthday is just five days apart, uh, we got a dog. And it was a uh, a really sweet, kind, uh, big, bulky boxer, if you know these dogs, and uh, just the sweetest dog you can imagine. Its name was uh, Simon, named after Simon and Simon. Some of you might be familiar with that uh, detective show. Uh, on our street, by the way, uh, we also had a Magnum and a Higgins from Magnum P.I. There was some weird phenomenon about uh, my street growing up where everybody named their dog after some sort of fictionalized uh, detective from TV. And uh, so anyway, we had Simon. Simon was this uh, just fun dog, you know, growing up. And, uh, and so it was the kind of dog that would just lay down, and I could just lay on him and uh, just didn't have a bit of a mean bone in his uh, body. Super kind, super uh, just gentle, but did have this wild streak. And, uh, and the wild streak, you would only see it if you left the door open, even a crack, and that dog would take off running. And, uh, and so the dog would take off running, would always go in the same direction from the house, which is to run to the bayou because it was smart. It knew that's where it could hide. So it runs to the bayou, and then from there it branch out into one of three different directions. And so pretty much, had we had three cars and cell phones back then, uh, we could have, instead of chasing the dog, we could have just driven to one of these three locations had each of us in a different location and just waited for the dog to show up. But we didn't have those kinds of things. And so I had to chase the dog, and I was never going to catch him, right? And uh, so he is a lot faster than me. And, uh, and so I would take off uh, running and eventually just wear him down with persistence. And, uh, and so whether it's a mile or a mile and a half or two miles later, my brother or myself uh, would uh, eventually catch up to him because he would just be completely overheated. And then we'd have to uh, take him back and get him water and, uh, and get him uh, refreshed. And he would be great for about two or three days, and then he would decide, i got to run again. And he would take off running. You know, that entire time I was growing up, until my, my dog passed away whenever I was, uh, I think, 17, uh, there was never a time where I just said, you know what, he's made his bed, he needs to lie in it. And there was never a time when I just didn't chase him. There was never a time, sure, I was frustrated, sure, I would get angry, my brother would too, my dad would, certainly. And, uh, and so there was never a time, though, when we would just say, you know what, it's just not worth it, because we love that dog. And so every time we would chase after him whenever he ran. We are starting uh, the book of Proverbs uh, this morning, and uh, so we'll be in chapter 2 in verses 1 through 22, and, uh, and what we're going to do over the next about 10 weeks is we're going to just take some select Proverbs. We're not going to preach through the entire book of Proverbs. That would take us years, uh, but we're also not going to just tackle it uh, topically. You might see that at certain churches, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to take some select verses from Proverbs, some central themes of the, the book, and we're going to work through those exegetically, expositionally, line uh, by line. And, uh, and, and so that's our plan uh, beginning uh, this week. And one of the things that I love about Proverbs 2 in particular as we begin here is that really it's going to provide for us an outline. Over the next uh, 10 weeks, it's going to provide kind of an outline of some of the major themes that we'll see. In fact, you could really even look at Proverbs 2 as providing an outline for the entire book of Proverbs as it deals with things like wisdom and, uh, and folly. And uh, so that's what we're going to do. And what we'll find, especially in today's text, is that uh, wisdom is something to be treasured. Wisdom is something to be loved. Wisdom is something, therefore, to be chased after, as I would chase after Simon. But the good news for us this morning is that unlike Simon, wisdom doesn't run from us. It's not elusive. It's stored up. It's guarded. It's waiting there for God's people if only they would seek after it. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to wade into the book of Proverbs. So let's pray uh, first. Just to ask you first, just to pray for yourself and for those around you. Ask that the Lord would give you a heart that would incline toward wisdom heart that would incline toward His Word, that you might be attentive, protected from distraction, and division, 
bitterness, resentment, all the different things that we could be bringing in, apathy to this room this morning. And pray that for those around you as well, your spouse, your children, the stranger sitting next to you, that the Lord would be gracious to all of us. And then lastly, would you pray for me, that the Lord would give me wisdom and boldness and confidence in His Word and who He is. So, Father, we thank You for this morning an opportunity for us to gather together as uh, the body of Your Son, the bride of Your Son, and to uh, consider Your Word together. And I pray that it might uh, collectively move in our hearts and our minds, that we might be uh, transformed, that we might be made as we consider these things to look more like Your Son. That's our hope. That's our expectation. And we ask because we know that that's Your joy and that's your goal for us, that we might look more like your son. And so we ask that you to move among us because you're a good father and you give good gifts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a, there's a scene in uh, the movie The Fugitive. Who here has seen the movie The Fugitive? If you haven't, you should go home and watch it. It's a classic. And uh, so it's got Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. And Tommy Lee Jones plays this U.S. Marshal, and he's chasing after uh, Harrison Ford, who is an escaped uh, convict who is uh, actually innocent. But there is a particular scene that I love, and, uh, and that's when you first really begin to see uh, just how incredible this uh, Tommy Lee Jones, U.S. Marshal uh, character is. And it's a scene where he comes on the scene, and, uh, and he begins to see kind of all of the carnage of this huge train wreck. And so he begins to lay out some parameters for the search uh, that's going to, to take place to try to find Harrison Ford's character, Dr. Richard Kimball. So he comes on the scene, and uh, he immediately begins to just spout out uh, orders and give these sort of wise uh, bits of trivia. He talks about the average foot speed uh, over uneven ground, barring injury, is four miles per hour, and talks about Richard Kimball having had uh, 90 minutes head start. So he says we have a search radius of, uh, of six miles, and we want a hard target search, and he talks about the fact that we want to check every gas station, residence, warehouse, outhouse, doghouse, henhouse, all of these sorts of things. It's just this classic scene there. And likewise, what I want to do before we really get into this text in particular, I want to kind of give us some parameters. As the text is dealing with how do we search for wisdom, I want to, want to really kind of frame what we're going to be doing uh, in particular over the next uh, few uh, weeks as we dive into uh, the book of uh, Proverbs. And so I want to give some sort of helpful hints for us as we consider this book because it's very different from Ephesians which is very different from Mark. These are the last two books that we've studied, uh, if you haven't been with us uh, recently. And so first uh, thing that I want to mention is that we should read this book. As we come to the book of Proverbs, we should read these uh, words, especially as the church, we should read those as those who are already in relationship with, uh, with God. You see, Proverbs contains a lot of moral and ethical instruction. It's going to tell us a number of things that we should do, a number of things that we should not do, things that we should avoid, things that we should pursue. And we need to understand that this is written within a framework of those who are already in covenant. Uh, Solomon is writing to his son who is already in covenant with Yahweh. So we should read these things not as a way for us to get into relationship with God, but as an overflow, as an outworking of the fact that we're already in relationship with God if we love and trust Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that uh, in going back to the Old Testament, we need to recognize that we don't take off our New Testament glasses. We need to leave on our New Testament lenses. We need to leave on our lens of the gospel and understanding that the only way that we have relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, not through these sort of moral uh, instructions. So that's the first thing that I wanted to mention. The second thing is that we're going to have to use a slightly different method when it comes to expository preaching. Uh, that's one of the things that we, that we uh, hold to be a very high value here at Parkway is that, uh, that we want to do expository preaching. In other words, we want to draw out of the text what the author intended to put into the text. We don't want to read something into the text that the author didn't intend, so we want to draw out of the text, but we're going to have to do this a little bit differently than we did the book of Ephesians. When we, we, when we went through Ephesians, we could pretty much do three verses. I think last week, literally, we spent the entire 50 minutes on two verses. We can't do that in Proverbs and work through. That's not the way that the genre functions. So, uh, although we're still going to be doing expository preaching, we're going to be doing a little bit of a different method of that. It's kind of like when you're painting your house. There are certain sections of your house that you use a roller on 
There are certain sections of your house that you use a little uh, brush on if, as you're going to cut and do some detail work. Likewise, there are certain sections of the Bible that the way that you do it expositorily is you deal with large chunks. And then there's other uh, texts, there's other genres, there's other, other sections of Scripture where you're intending to go a little bit more word by word, line by line. We're going to go more uh, section by section as we uh, consider uh, Proverbs. And then the last thing, just to kind of uh, frame this, to orient us, to kind of give some parameters, uh, is I wanted to mention why we decided uh, to even do Proverbs. And uh, so there's two reasons that we decided to spend the next 10 weeks in Proverbs. The first one is uh, because we thought it might be wise for us to spend a, a little chunk of time in the Old Testament. Again, we have spent uh, about the past 25 weeks in the book of Ephesians. Before that, we spent a little over a year in the book of Mark. So we've been in the New Testament quite a bit, so we want, didn't want to just completely forsake the Old Testament. We wanted to spend some time uh, here examining it, digging into it, pouring into that. And the second one is because I think the book of Proverbs is going to be really, really helpful for us in the midst of this changing culture. As our culture continues to change, I can't tell you how often I am reading a blog or uh, watching a TV show or uh, reading a newspaper or something like that, and there will be some sort of cultural concept, cultural idea that, uh, that, that my initial response is just, man, this particular proverb would be really helpful if someone would just wrestle with the meaning of this particular text. So a couple of things that, uh, that we'll talk about over the next few weeks, Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Does that sound like the opposite of our culture today? Or the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him, also for Proverbs 18. Or Proverbs 17, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. These are the kinds of things that our culture is moving away from. As our culture drifts away from sort of the Judeo-Christian roots and, and away from biblical literacy, these are some things that are going to be really helpful to offer a corrective and a reorientation of who we are as a people of the book. And so we'll explore those over the next few weeks, but for now let's begin to look in uh, the book of uh, Proverbs chapter 2. We'll start in verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures. This reminds me of uh, playing hide-and-go-seek as a kid. Or did anyone ever play Marco Polo? Raise your hand if you played Marco Polo. All right. Uh, raise your hand if you are familiar with Marco Polo, whether you played it or not. You at least know the general uh, idea. So the general concept is this, typically played within a pool, and someone closes their eyes, which they don't ever actually do. They always have their eyes open. They're always cheating. Uh, but you have your eyes closed, and you're it, and it's basically like freeze tag or hide-and-go-seek or something like that. And your goal is to touch somebody else in the pool but your eyes are closed, their eyes are open. But here's the thing, you get to call out, Marco. And the other person is supposed to respond, Polo, right? And every time you say Marco, someone should say Polo. Now, meanwhile, this person's cheating because he's looking, but the other people are cheating because someone's really close and they say Marco and you don't say Polo because you don't want to get touched, all right? And so it's cheating uh, all around. But this is the general idea. That's what I... Uh, that's the image that I get from this, that we're calling out for wisdom, we're crying out for wisdom, and it is constantly uh, returning our call. It is echoing as we call out for wisdom, it echoes in response. It's not cheating. Wisdom's not elusive, wisdom's not trying to hide from us. We call out for wisdom, we cry out, we raise our voice for wisdom, for insight, for understanding, and wisdom is not quiet and reserved. She's not hiding. Uh, if we were to read chapter 8, as we will, uh, in a few weeks, we would see that wisdom is standing in the street where she can be seen and crying out where she can be heard. This is the voice of wisdom. And notice all the verbs that are used here. Receive, treasure, make your ear attentive, incline your heart, call out, raise your voice, seek it like silver, search for it as for hidden treasure. There's desperation in these words. There's longing, there's yearning, there's wanting, there's desiring, there's delighting in all of these words. Now look at the things that the person, the son, is supposed to seek out and to search for. 
His Father's words and commandments, wisdom, understanding, and insight. These are all examples, by the way, of uh, what's called poetic parallelism. So we shouldn't read these as though wisdom is one thing and insight is another thing and understanding is another thing. These are all intended as uh, synonyms. It's synonymous parallelism. He's using different words to express kind of the, the concept, to emphasize the holistic nature of what we are to, uh, to seek out. And I love this imagery of hidden treasure, that wisdom is this thing like a hidden treasure, but I also find that super convicting. And I wonder if you do as well. Like, if I ask myself, do I genuinely, desperately search for treasure, thinking that there's treasure to be found in God's Word, that there's treasure to be found in wisdom and insight and understanding? Do I make my ear attentive? Do I incline my heart? Do I call out? Do I raise my voice? Do I seek and search for it? This kind of reminds me of the difference of whenever I was in college and I would get assigned a textbook versus whenever I was 12 years old and the, the book Jurassic Park came out. And, uh, and so I was 12 years old, the book Jurassic Park came out. I somehow uh, got the book. I think my parents bought it for me, uh, and I read it. We were on vacation. I stayed up to like 4 a.m. every night in the hotel reading this because I'd never heard of a velociraptor before. And I was just amazed uh, by this book. There was an excitement. There was an eagerness. There was a longing. And contrast that with the way that I would read something when it was assigned to me in college. I'm bored. I just want to, I read all the words. I'm not comprehending. I'm not doing any of that sort of thing. I'm just trying to get through it. And I wonder if sometimes my searching, my seeking, my longing for wisdom is more like what I did in college. Whenever the Bible says it should be more like whenever I was 12 and I was reading Jurassic Park and I was excited and there was longing and there was passion and eagerness in it. I couldn't put it down. Is that how we think of wisdom? Is that how we think of insight? Is something to be treasured and long for. And who better to teach us to treasure wisdom than Solomon? If you're familiar with the story of Solomon, you know the Lord appears to him the day that he uh, becomes king uh, over the nation of Israel, and the Lord appears to him and says, ask for me anything in this dream. And if I'm Solomon, I'm asking for treasure. I'm asking for long life. I'm asking for my kingdom to expand. I'm asking for three more wishes. I'm asking for one of these sorts of things. But what's the one thing that Solomon asked for? He says, wisdom. Of all the gifts that you could possibly give me, this is what I most need. I most need insight. I most need wisdom. So as we read these words written by Solomon, who better to tell us what wisdom is than him? And so these are the ifs. If we would do these things, if we would treasure and make our ears attentive and incline our hearts and call out and raise our voices and seek and search if we will do this. So let's read the thens, the consequences, the effects. Verses 5 through 8. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord Yahweh gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of His saints. So here's the payoff. The fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. It says a lot about your heart if you read this and you think, ah, that's kind of a letdown. I was hoping for something else. If I do all of these things, then the reward better be worth it. And this doesn't sound like the reward is worth it. That says a lot about your heart. The heart that really understands the fear of the Lord says, this is everything. This is more than I could have expected. If I would do all of these things, this is a greater reward than I could have possibly imagined. You know, sometimes people want to divorce wisdom and knowledge as if those are two different things. You have book smarts and you have street smarts and, uh, and never the two shall uh, meet necessarily. But biblically, we see here that wisdom can't be separated from knowledge that you can't be truly wise in the way that the Bible is using this term wisdom if you don't know what God says because God is the source of all wisdom and also the source of all knowledge. Which is why I think biblically you can have knowledge without wisdom, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. I'll say that again. You can have knowledge without wisdom, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. What is wisdom? Wisdom is knowledge that's been applied to the complexities and circumstances of your life. There is no true wisdom without knowledge. We talked about this a little bit in Ephesians, how you can, uh, you can speak the truth without love, 
but you can't speak lovingly without the truth. Likewise, you can have knowledge without wisdom, but not wisdom without knowledge. Let me give you an illustration of this. Imagine I held out both hands. Imagine I hold out both hands, and in one hand, I have 100 crisp $1 bills. In the other hand, I have 10 kind of a bit folded up, a bit older uh, $100 bills. And I say, choose. Choose which one you want. I'll give you whichever one, whichever handful that you want. Well, wisdom says, take the one that's more valuable. But how do you know what's more valuable? Looking at it, you have 100 over here. You have 10 over here. Over here, you have these crisp bills. Over here, you have these folded up, uh, sort of uh, a bit more mangled bills. How do you know which one? Without that knowledge, you can't actually do what is wise. So wisdom always is going to demand a degree of knowledge. Now, there's a whole lot of highly educated people that the Bible would call fools. So, it's, again, you, it's possible to have knowledge without wisdom, but you can't. It doesn't go the other way. And notice that wisdom and knowledge and understanding come from the Lord and from His mouth. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. The Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives and stores up and watches and guards. This is a very Yahweh-centric view of wisdom, a very God-centered view of what wisdom really is, that wisdom is not something that just comes from a fortune cookie or from Benjamin Franklin or something like that, that wisdom is this thing that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. This is crucial if we're going to really understand what the Bible means when it talks about wisdom because there is a difference, there's a fundamental difference between what we would understand as worldly wisdom or common sense and how Solomon is using the term here in the Bible. There's a huge difference. There's a huge divide between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom or uh, common sense and biblical wisdom. Common sense is just a sense that's commonly shared by the masses. We talked about this a little bit in uh, theological quipping. Uh, but as the masses begin to change, so does the sense that is common to them. So if, if common sense is defined by a standard that is the culture, as that culture changes, so does your understanding of what is sensible. So does your understanding of what is wise. Twenty-five years ago, common sense would say that girls couldn't be Boy Scouts, but that's no longer the case as of a week ago or something like that. You see, common sense is, cultural, is, is constantly changing because it's tethered to something that's constantly changing. That is people, the masses, whereas God's wisdom, divine wisdom, is always tethered to something that doesn't change, which is His Word, which is the nature and character of God Himself. And lots of things in the Bible are not wise in the way that we might define wisdom from a, a worldly perspective, a God who dies for rebels. That's the height of foolishness from the worldly perspective perspective, and yet it is the essence, the core of our very hope and, uh, and faith, which is why if we're going to talk about wisdom, we need to define it by canon, the canon of Scripture, not by culture, which is why here at Parkway, we always want to emphasize the supremacy, not only of wisdom as a virtue, but also the Word of God as the source of all true wisdom. So that brings us back to this question, are we, are you that desperate to seek after God in His Word? Are we that desperate to really seek after God in His Word? There are two reasons that I can think of, at least, that you wouldn't search for treasure. If I told you there was treasure that was buried, there are two reasons that you wouldn't search for it. The first would be because you don't think it's that valuable. Whatever it is that I tell you, you know, I tell you, there's a penny that's buried out there somewhere. Go find it, all right? Very few of us are going to actually spend an hour or two hours or three hours going to look for it. But imagine I said there are, there's a million dollars out there. I think you would probably sacrifice a little of your time to go and look for that. Why? Because that's more valuable. So the first reason that we wouldn't search for something is because we don't think it's valuable. The second reason is because you don't believe that it's actually there. But biblically, this is the source of wisdom, the Scripture. It proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And we know that it, it uh, is of the most high value. It's of inestimable value for us. That's what the psalmist knew. In, uh, in Psalm 119, we had it up on the board whenever we were singing, you are good and you do good. Uh, but uh, the psalmist says this in Psalm 119, uh, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold, that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. 
Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Verse 72 of Psalm 119, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Verse 97, oh how I love your law, it is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Not only the psalmist, but the Proverbs later on will say this as well. Proverbs 3, verses 14 through 15, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. So if our hearts don't believe this, there needs to be a reorientation of our hearts. There's something that's disconnected between what God has said about the inherent and intrinsic worth and value of His Word and our inability to grasp that worth, our inability to grasp, to comprehend how valuable it actually is. That's why, again, that we're so deadly serious when it comes to Bible and theology because without the Word, we can't try find true wisdom without wisdom, we can't love or live rightly. We say it all the time here at Parkway, and we're going to continue to say it until you get tired of it uh, and uh, until we actually begin to really believe it together. That is that theology is always going to be the ceiling for our worship. Theology is always the, ce- uh, the ceiling for our worship. Those of us who might want to divide the head and the heart are misrepresenting what the biblical picture is of the way that uh, the head and the heart overlap if you want to try to, uh, to pursue a greater devotional life without doctrine, that's kind of like trying to burn a hotter fire and yet you rob it of fuel. You rob it of wood. You rob it of oxygen. Oxygen and wood are the fuel, though, for the flames. So theology, doctrine, the Scripture is the fuel for our worship. The more that we understand who God is rightly, the higher our capacity to not only understand Him, but also to respond to Him correctly and to experience hope and joy and all of these sorts of things. And this whole passage brings up this really interesting paradox. It encourages us to seek wisdom, and it yet at the same time it says that wisdom is a gift. It's a gift. It's not intrinsic. It's extrinsic. It's something that comes from without. It's not something that we look. Don't look to yourself for wisdom. We look out of ourselves for wisdom. We'll talk about that in a few weeks uh, when we talk about Proverbs 3. Trust not in your own understanding. Lean not in your own understanding. It's this external thing. As Proverbs will say, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Or 1 Corinthians would say that the, the, the natural man cannot understand true spiritual things. The natural man is born with this state of folly and foolishness. Again, it's a gift. We seek it, but God gives it. A few years ago, I decided to do something a little bit interesting, whether it was fun or not for my nieces and nephews. I don't know. But instead of just giving them a gift card or going to Toys R Us and buying them a present or uh, giving them a check or something like that, which they're super bored by, uh, I decided I was going to create this treasure hunt. And so I went and, uh, and went to a number of banks, and I got uh, silver, like half dollars or whatever those pieces are, and uh, like Sacagawea dollars and, uh, and some silver dollars, and I, I got uh, enough for all of them to have whatever I normally spend uh, on each of them individually. And so I got enough for each of them, and then I, uh, I got this little treasure chest-looking thing, and I put all of those in there and wrapped them up in a, a really cool bag, uh, and then uh, we, uh, we buried it. And, uh, and so Casey and I spent uh, an entire evening uh, making this treasure map that they would follow. And then we uh, you know, cut off the edges and we crumpled it up. We put coffee on it so it looked old and stained. And, uh, and then my nieces and nephews spent uh, Christmas morning kind of opening that and going and looking and finding uh, the treasure. My two youngest nephews thought the the payoff was just the fact that they get to play in dirt. But that's beside the point. Uh, but uh, it was this sort of image that I get here where it's something that I gave to them and they, they had to seek it. They had to be diligent to seek after it. Likewise, wisdom is something that God gives to us. It is something that we have to also be diligent to uh, pursue. And notice that wisdom is presented as a path or a way. 
Notice there the imagery there, that wisdom is presented as a path or a way. This is going to be a key theme that's going to kind of weave throughout this entire uh, chapter. In verse 9, we're going to see that wisdom is a path. In verse 12, the word way. Verse 13, it used paths and ways. Verse 15, paths and ways. 18 and 19, paths. 20, way and path. And so this path and ways imagery is not only a pattern for this section, but in, indeed for the entire book of uh, Proverbs. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, that there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end its way is, anybody know? Death, right? And uh, so not only is this the, a theme that you'll see running through this chapter, but it's a theme that runs through Proverbs, and not only through Proverbs, but through the entire Bible, where Jesus will stand up and He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. There's this imagery of these two different paths that we can walk down. One is the path of wisdom. The other one is the path of folly. One leads to life. The other leads to uh, death. And this is the first reward for pursuing wisdom, that you will find wisdom, knowledge, and the fear of God, and also guidance and protection, which is a theme that we'll pick up in the next section. So let's look at verses 9 through 11. Then the secondary consequence You will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. In the previous verse, we are kind of reminded that for those who treasure wisdom, God is a shield and a refuge. But according to verses 9 through 11, the way way that God protects His people is through the gift of wisdom, that God uses various means to accomplish His ends. So God guards you, God protects you, yet the way that He guards you and protects you is often through the gift of wisdom. God uses wisdom contained in His Word to preserve and protect His people. And notice that our understanding of righteousness, justice, and equity is dependent on our possessing this, uh, this wisdom. This is an idea that we will examine increasingly more over the next few weeks as we kind of wrestle with this idea of this increasingly divided society that we live in, wrestling with issues like injustice and, uh, and how common sense and wisdom applies to all of these sorts of things. And uh, so we'll be wrestling with that over the next few weeks. But God's Word, according to this, is the ultimate defense against bad decision-making. His Word, in essence, provides the danger sign for us to prevent us uh, from going on a path that we shouldn't go on. It's the, the, the sign, the means by which God preserves His people is through the gift of wisdom. So if you're walking on the path of wisdom, you will pursue justice and equity, and you will be protected. That's the promise. This can be hard to believe. Obviously, there will be times in your life where you might make the quote-unquote wise decision, and it might feel like God is not protecting you. He's not preserving you. So your only opportunity to date somebody is an unbeliever, and so you might feel like, well, maybe I just need to compromise on that, or otherwise I'm going to have to get a whole bunch of cats and I'm going to die all alone. Those are my only options, right? Or maybe uh, unless I really do this unethical thing that my boss has asked me to do, then I'm going to get fired, and I'm going to live alone. I'm going to have to get a bunch of cats. I don't like cats, by the way. Just mentioned that. But... uh, there are always going to be opportunities for the flesh to push and to press and to say, if you make this decision, if you walk down this path, these will be the consequences. And yet God's Word says, no, there will be rewards. Maybe not the type of reward that you might want. Maybe not the timing that you might actually desire. There have been dozens upon dozens of times that I've sat down uh, with a man or a woman who wants out of a bad marriage. For whatever reason, their marriage is just, in their minds, it's uh, in flames or in ashes or whatever it might be. There have been dozens of times where I sit down with them uh, and I say, God is absolutely able to raise your marriage from the ashes. If God could raise Jesus from the dead, He can raise your marriage from its state of death. And at the same time, to tell them, but I don't know that He will necessarily do that. But I can tell you this, it's worth it. It's always worth it to pursue. Even if the temporal reward is not what you might necessarily want, that you will find more joy, 
more eternal peace and hope and love and all of those sorts of things if there's a reorientation of our desires and our delights around God's Word. So what does wisdom guard you from? Guards us from wicked men and women, which are the characters personified in the next two sections. So let's look at that. Verses 12 through 15, we meet this wicked man first. Delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So again, this proverb is setting up a contrast between two paths, two ways. One path is marked by wisdom. The other one uh, is populated by folly and populated by evil men and wicked women. This past week, I was uh, reading in my office at, at home, and next to me, I had two cups of coffee, right? And uh, I normally am not uh, drinking two cups of coffee, and I wasn't this morning either. Uh, it was just one cup was fresh and hot, and I had just done it th- that morning. The other one was from 48 hours uh, prior. So I'd had a crazy 48 hours, and, uh, and I had uh, not uh, taken the time to go and pour that out. And so sitting there next to me as I'm reading is uh, two cups uh, of coffee. And judge me if you want, but I put cream and, uh, and sugar or sugar substitute into my coffee. So it's not just coffee. It's coffee-cream mixture, probably already starting to ferment there. And it's sitting next to me. You probably know where the story's going. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm there. I'm enjoying the coffee. I'm enjoying uh, reading the Bible. And then I experienced something that was not enjoyable because I drank some of the old stuff. And it was freezing cold, and it was super bad. And then I started to gag because I realized I have this in my mouth. I don't want to swallow it, so I have to get up and I have to run into the kitchen, spit it out, and then I start dry heaving in the sink for like 30 seconds at the thought of what had just been in my mouth. Wisdom would have told me 48 hours prior, hey, when you're finished with that, go pour it out. My wife would have told me that as well. She is often the voice of wisdom. Uh, But uh, wisdom also would have said that I should have paid attention to what I was drinking. I, uh, unfortunately, did not listen to either of those voices of wisdom, and I paid the consequences. There were two cups that were before me, and as the, the knight in the last crusade said, I chose poorly, right? And, uh, and so, likewise, there are these two paths that are running through the book of Proverbs, the path of wisdom and the path of folly. We've talked about some of the rewards of walking on the path of wisdom. Now let's talk about some of the costs or the consequences of walking down the path of folly. And as we're walking down this path, we encounter a character, and the first character we meet on this dark path of foolishness is a wicked man. Notice what we see about him. Perverted speech, that doesn't necessarily mean sexual perversion. It's just anything that deviates from the standard, anything that is uh, not correct, anything that deviates from what's right and proper. In addition, he's described as rejoicing in evil and delighting in perverseness. Now, contrast that with what we just saw with the son who is uh, supposed to delight in, to rejoice, to treasure good and wisdom and these sorts of things. The righteous man's path is straight as his heart is straight. The wicked man's path is crooked as is his heart. And wisdom helps us to avoid such people. It helps us to avoid this deceptive, this wicked person. Now, that is not saying that you and I as believers should avoid unbelievers, that you and I should avoid evil people in every sense of the word. That's absolutely not what the Bible is saying. In fact, the Bible suggests that you and I should be around wicked people so that we can be a positive influence in their life. That's part of the reason that Zach was talking about what he was with, uh, with Tim, having people over to his house uh, at Halloween. What better place for people to gather on Halloween than in the yard of someone who wants to influence them towards the gospel so that there can be evangelism, so that the gospel could go forth, the kingdom uh, could expand. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the lost are not our enemies. Evil men and evil women are not our enemies. We are to pray for them. We are to long for them. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We should love and serve the lost that we might win them to Christ, but we don't live the way that they live, which is what this verse is talking about. Wisdom protects us from behaving wickedly as we love and serve a wicked world. It protects us from being deceived by the wicked and from delighting in their ways. 
not only the wicked man, but the next character that we see is this forbidden woman in verses 16 through 19. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsake the companion, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So we saw the wicked man, now we meet this forbidden woman, and notice that whereas the man is going to rely on deception, the, the woman is bold in her indiscretion. She's bold. She's up front. She's not lying to you about what she desires. She's just lying to you about what the consequences might be. She relies not on crooked words, but instead smooth speech. So who is this forbidden woman? If you have another translation, it might say strange. A strange woman. That's kind of weird. There's probably some strange women and strange men in this room today in the way that we think of the word strange. I had a buddy in high school that uh, I set him up on a, uh, a, a blind date. Uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't a blind date. He actually knew the person. It was a blind date for her, and uh, she gave me a hard time about it. Uh, but I set this guy up on a date with a girl that uh, he, he kind of liked, and they're out on a date. They go and see a movie, and he goes and he buys nachos. And uh, so he's eating the nachos. He offers her a nacho. She says no. And then right before the movie starts, for no reason whatsoever, just because this is a weird guy, he's a strange guy, he takes the nacho and he goes, nacho, 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 nacho. But he didn't stop. Like it went on for a very awkward time. There was no second date. Uh, that's strange, right? His actions were strange, but not forbidden in this sense. Whenever the Bible's talking about a strange woman, uh, that's why the ESV translates it as a forbidden woman uh, to show the difference uh, there. Someone uh, who sings about or two nachos, I don't know exactly what happened there, is, is strange, but someone who's already married is forbidden. Or this word will also be used at times for foreigners because for an Israelite to marry uh, a non-Israelite was forbidden. It's any sort of forbidden relationship, whatever that is. And so we see here that wisdom is not only the best protection against deception, but also against seduction. This woman's smooth words are also translated as slippery in other contexts. So think of this image of smooth, wet rocks that you're walking on, just, uh, just daring yourself to fall, just testing yourself, just waiting for the moment when you will eventually slip on the smooth wet rocks. And as a result, you slip and you slide under the icy water to your death. That's the idea of the passage. This seduction is a, a, a slip and slide towards Sheol, towards the place of shade, towards the place of death. And like all slip and slides, it seems fun till you get to the end. And her desire is the doorway to death. She's forsaken her companion. She's forgotten her covenant. She's an adulteress and she beckons you to adultery. We'll talk more about that as we look at chapter 7 on the adulterous woman in, uh, in two weeks. Again, this, this is really setting up the next, uh, the next seven chapters of the book of Proverbs as each of these individual sections that we see here is then expounded upon in an entire section all by itself. Uh, and so we won't spend as much time on, uh, on any of these individual ones because we're breaking them down in future weeks. By the way, some have critiqued the, the book of Proverbs and passages like this as though it's sexist because of passages like this. It's critiquing this uh, seductress, this adulteress, this forbidden or strange uh, woman. But that doesn't really work because we've just spent all of this time talking about a wicked man as well. The problem is not one of gender. Plus, the book of Proverbs is going to very uh, admirably describe wisdom as this woman crying out in the street. So there's a positive image and a negative image as well. So there's not a proverbial woman-hater club or something like that going on. Solomon is writing or speaking to his son, so he uses the image of a woman. And if you know the story of Solomon, he would have done really well to follow his own advice. Sexual fidelity, biblically, is more than just sexual fidelity. It's a, a, a metaphor, an image, uh, an example of spiritual fidelity as well. We'll be talking about that in the weeks ahead. To be sexually unfaithful is to be spiritually unfaithful. As Solomon knew all too well, he added wives 
And as a result of adding wives, he added gods. And as a result of adding gods, he forsook the one true God. So what it's saying here is when we're wise, we recognize that the lies and the lust are not lovely. They're not thrilling as they seem. We see that the fruits and the consequences of our actions and choose the better way because we're wise enough to know what is truly better. So here we see this really interesting, fascinating thing that wisdom functions not only by shining a light on the paths of dark deception, but also shines a light on our hearts and asks us to wrestle with, do I really find that darkness dark? Or do I find something about it that's intriguing, something about it that's enticing, something about it uh, that is interesting, something about it that is to be treasured? So, uh, the wisdom is not only going to shine a light on the paths and show us the wise path, but it also shows us uh, our own hearts and shows us what's there where there is longing for something that's wicked, where there is longing for something that is evil. And the more that we understand wisdom, the more that we encounter wisdom, the more that we become conformed to the image of wisdom, the less we delight in what was once delightful to us. The more we encounter wisdom in the Word of God, the more our hearts are transformed accordingly. Let's look at the last section here. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous For the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So in order to avoid the the wicked man, the, the, the path, the way of the adulterous woman, you must walk in the good way and the righteous path by following the voice of wisdom contained in the Word. And the result will be inhabiting the land, which is a metaphor that's often used in the Old Testament for abundant life. Life in the Old Testament is this very sort of physical thing. In the New Testament, there's this expansion where it's not just a physical thing. It's still a physical thing, but there's an expansion of a spiritual element. There's an expansion of the parameters of God's promises to show us that they're more holistic than we could imagine. So as we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see these promises that God makes expand from the promised land to the entire earth from long life to eternal life, from life after death to resurrection, and on and on we could go with all of these different ways that the promise is going to be expanded. So the point isn't that all who pursue wisdom will have a long and healthy and comfortable life. That's the prosperity gospel. That's not the gospel that the Bible teaches. The Bible isn't about your best life now. If this is your best life, you're in trouble. The Bible talks about there is a better life that is to come. If this is the best that you ever know, then your eternal destiny is horrific. Some of the wisest who have ever lived experience the worst pain and suffering. But there is a promise of reward here. There's a reward for the righteous, but also judgment for the unjust and the unwise. So, that's kind of an overview of this, uh, this chapter. I want to ask the question, what do we do with it? All right, We've kind of overviewed the entire chapter. We'll expand upon individual sections in the, the days and weeks uh, ahead. What, what do we do with this? What do we do with Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 22? I want to commend a few things for us. First, there's obviously this moral or ethical component to it. We already talked about the fact that this is, we're not moralistic in the sense of uh, we don't believe moralism is what saves you. You can do everything the book of Proverbs says in terms of uh, you know, not gossiping and working hard and being diligent uh, and not committing adultery and all of these sorts of things. You can have all of the external conditions of Proverbs met and not love Jesus and thus not experience life. So we're not moralists in that sense, but there is still a moral or ethical component for us that should encourage us to avoid adultery, to avoid foolishness, be wise and not wicked. That's certainly an implication and application of the passage that we would do well to hear and to heed. Second, a second application or implication of this is that we should uh, seek wisdom. There's a call here to posture ourselves under the waterfall of wisdom, which is God's Word. Go where wisdom is and drink deeply. If you're thirsty, you go to a fountain. Likewise, if you're thirsty for wisdom, you go to the fountain of wisdom, which is God's Word to receive, to treasure, to listen, to incline, to call out, to seek, to search for wisdom, 
That's certainly another implication that we would do well to hear and to heed by daily drinking from and delighting in God's Word to posture ourselves to see and to hear and to taste and to receive. So if you desire wisdom, you must drink and drink deeply and desperately from the Word. So if you aren't pursuing this, if you aren't reading or listening to Scripture, if you're not regularly attending and listening to good sermons, if you're not regularly engaging in conversation where others can be a source of wisdom for you, then you're forsaking the very means by which God would grant you this wisdom, this protection, this treasure that He has given. You're not chasing wisdom, which means if you're not on this path, you're on this other path. If you're not chasing after wisdom, you're chasing after folly, and the result is foolishness and all of its fruits. So that's a second implication of the the text, that we should seek after wisdom, that we should go where wisdom is and seek after it. There's another principle that we need to expound upon if we're really going to follow where the text is leading through these gospel-centered lenses that I want to talk about. You see, we're reading this not as Solomon's sons. If you love and trust Jesus, we're reading this not as Solomon's sons, but as sons of the living God, sons and daughters of the living God. We're reading this from the vantage point of the gospel. We want to have a gospel-centered reading of this text that uh, leads us to Jesus Christ. We read it knowing that wisdom is found in God's inspired Word as it leads us to God's incarnate Word, which is Jesus Christ. So when we read it through the filter of the full counsel of God, not merely the Old Testament, not merely the book of Proverbs, but the Old Testament and the New Testament together, centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, we find this. If we want wisdom, we need Jesus. There's no way around it. If you want wisdom, you need Jesus. There is no wisdom apart from Jesus. If you want these promises of righteousness and life and treasure and all of those sorts of things, then you need Jesus. As a child, Jesus was filled with wisdom. Later, crowds marveled at His wisdom. They marveled at the fact that He had this wisdom. Solomon was the world's wisest king, and yet of himself Jesus claimed one greater than Solomon is here. In fact, Jesus isn't merely wise. He is the very personification of wisdom itself. So when we search for wisdom, we need look no further than Jesus. He is the power and the wisdom of God, according to 1 Corinthians. And in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, according to Colossians 2. So as we look for, Je- for wisdom, we look... To Jesus, which leads us to His death and resurrection, which is what we celebrate in communion. So will you pray with me, and then we'll partake of communion together. Father, I thank You that You are God who delights to be sought after, that we can seek after You, we can search for You, we can seek and search for wisdom with expectation and hope that You desire to be found, and that You have revealed Yourself in Your Son. And so I pray, Father, that You would help us to treasure Him above and beyond all things that we might love and treasure and adore and yearn for and eagerly desire and desperately delight in Jesus Christ, who is the very power and wisdom of You and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so I pray all of these things in His precious name. Amen.